0: Hello, America, and welcome to a new edition of John Solomon Reports. Yep, the podcast from Just the News. You've been listening long enough, except that you would know that today is a Monday. We don't normally have a podcast on Mondays, but we're gonna have one today. Why? We've got a former Green Beret, a Trump-loving former Green Beret, who's trying to recapture one of those house seats that were lost in 2018 in the so-called Trump districts, districts that Trump carried in 16. He's joining us, Nick Friedis is here. He's got a great bio, a great story. He's running a very important campaign in Central Virginia against Allison Spanberger, who was one of the prominent faces of the Democratic wave election in 2018. She captured a district in Central Virginia that had been in Republican hands since 1971. Nick Friedis is trying to turn that back. He's got an amazing story, uh, his record of service in Iraq, um, joining the Green Braves after 9-11. He's been running a very substantive campaign, uh, has this podcast that uh, where he talks about issues, sort of like Ronald Reagan did in the fireside chats. Uh, and he's gaining a lot of traction. Some of the Republicans have that district now leaning Republican, and if the Republicans have any chance of recapturing the House, that seventh district in in Central Virginia is going to have to flip. Nick is the candidate that the Republicans have picked, and we're going to be speaking to him about all things election, about Virginia, about Governor Ralph Northam. Yes, he's had the blackface controversy. He's also had some really strong liberal policies that Democrats are cheering on that have alienated some of the moderate and conservative residents of the state of Virginia, where I live, by the way. Uh, So we're going to have a a special conversation. This is one of the 30 key contenders in the House races. We haven't been talking a lot about them lately because we've been focused on the presidential race and COVID and uh, Russia. But today we're going to talk to a real live contender in one of the most watched closely watched districts in the House uh, for the fall November election. Nick Friedis will be joining us in a second. Uh, We're going to go to a quick commercial break, as we always do at this point. Please remember to sponsor our great advertisers and uh, sponsors. They do tremendous uh, work for us. We're very lucky to have them. When we come back, I'm going to do a quick uh, top on a story that we broke this morning on uh, just the news. You're going to want to hear about this. And uh, Twitter, a double standard. Adam Schiff, inaccurate tweets. Wait a second. What are you talking about? I'm sure you're going to believe it when I'm done. We're going to get the facts to back it up. First, this commercial break, we'll be right back.
1: Can't pay the IRS? Haven't filed in a while? Receiving threatening letters? Yeah, it's about to get worse. The IRS is hiring an army of agents targeting hardworking Americans like you. You need warriors on your side. You need Tax Network USA. Tax Network USA employs brilliant strategies to solve your IRS problems quickly and in your favor. For instance, they've discovered a limited-time special offer that the IRS is willing to waive $1 billion in penalties. Find out if you qualify before it's too late. Never call the IRS alone. Let Tax Network USA attorneys handle it. They have preferred direct lines to the IRS. They know which agents to work with and which to avoid. They've resolved over $1 billion in tax debts and offer a best-in-class guarantee. Schedule your free consultation now. Call one 800 That's one 800 245 Or visit taxnetworkusa.com victor. Taxnetworkusa.com victor.
0: All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. Very grateful that you're here today. Uh, Special podcast on a Monday. The reason we have a special podcast, we've got a special guest. Nick Friedis, former Green Beret, served our country in Iraq, a rising star of the Republican Party, particularly in Virginia. He's here to talk about his race against the liberal uh, congresswoman, uh, Allison Spanberger, one of the people who won a 2018 house race in a Trump leaning district. Uh, He's going to tell us how he's going to try to win that district back in the fall. But before we get to Nick, I wanted to quickly uh, just go over uh, a story that we broke today on Just the News. Uh, A lot of people are talking about uh, the incredible double standards that they see in Facebook, Twitter, social media, Google, President Trump being treated one way, uh, Democrats or everyday people being treated another. And as we know, Twitter has flagged some of President Trump's tweets, uh, calling them inaccurate or misleading. And so we decided to go take a look at Adam Schiff. Now, he's got a big... Uh, social following, over 2 million social followers on Twitter alone. And we went back and took a look at some of the tweets he had during the Russia scandal, the bogus Russia scandal, the collusion, delusion. And we found uh, more than a dozen clearly factually inaccurate, factually misleading tweets, things about Carter Page, things about Russia collusion. And guess what? Twitter hasn't flagged any of them, even though the evidence is sitting out in public to show that some of the things that Adam Schiff claimed on Twitter are uh, inaccurate, misleading, untruthful. I'll just give you one good example. Uh, uh, Back in uh, February of 2018, Adam Schiff um, tweeted out something to this effect. Let me give it to you. It confirms, meaning a document that the Democrats put out, the FBI acted appropriately and that Russian agents approached two of our advisors and informed your campaign that Russia was prepared to help you by disseminating stolen emails. The FBI acted appropriately. Well, guess what? We now know from the inspector general, from the FISA court, from the declassified documents that the ODNI, John Ratcliffe, we uh, uh, released and the FBI has released that the FBI did anything but act appropriately in the Russia scandal. They cheated on the FISA. They improperly spied on Americans without the legal authority or the evidence to back it up. So Adam Schiff's tweet is sitting out there, much like he has tweets against George Papadopoulos, Carter Page, um, and nothing has been done by Twitter. So you have to ask yourself, is this a double standard? A lot of people are today. If you want to read this story and take a look at all the tweets that we flagged, take a look at uh, Just the News. It's leading the site right now. It's a story I wrote over the weekend for this morning. And uh, you decide for yourself whether these tweets are accurate, whether Twitter is uh, dealing with a double hand here, treating Trump one way and Adam Schiff another. Uh, since the story broke, people like Jim Jordan and others have tweeted it out, raising the same question, which is, where is Jack Dorsey? Where is Twitter? Are you going to treat Republicans and Democrats the same, or is there going to be a double standard? We'll keep you uh, up to date. If Twitter does anything on the uh, tweets involving Adam Schiff, we'll let you know. In the meantime, we're getting ready for uh, Nick Freitas the Virginia Republican candidate for the 7th District House seat, U.S. House of Representatives. He's a Green Beret. He's a Trump um, supporter. He is trying to win back one of those 30 Trump seats that flipped in the 2018 election in central Virginia. When we come back from this commercial break, you're going to hear directly from Nick on how the race is trending, what are the issues in Virginia at large in his district and across America and across America as the November election is less than 80 days away. All right, we'll be back right after this commercial break with Nick Friedus. Folks, if you owe back taxes, fair warning, you're not going to like this. The IRS is mailing millions of pay-up letters. Millions, I say. Then it's up to the 20,000 new IRS enforcement agents to find you. Why the IRS targets you and not millionaires? Well, because millionaires have tax lawyers. You don't, you'll pay up plus interest in penalties. IRS penalty canceling offer. To do so, call 1-800-245-6000. That's 1-800-245-6000. Or visit TNUSA.com slash Just News. That's TNUSA.com slash Just News. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And as promised, I've got a very special guest here today. Nick Friedis is running against uh, Abigail Spanberger in one of the key and wa- closely watched house races this fall. Um, Spanberger, of course, was one of those Trump districts that flipped in 2018. And Nick, uh, a combat vet, a um, member of the Green Berets, a member of the 89th Airborne, uh, served his country uh, remarkably, and now is uh, making a big run for office. So Nick, uh, welcome to the podcast.
2: No, thanks for having me on, John.
0: Ah, It's a pleasure to have you on. So tell us, how are things going in this race? This is one of those 30 swing districts that everybody's watching as the bellwethers in the fall. What's the race look like right now?
2: It's actually looking very good. This district is fundamentally Republican. It's probably about an R plus six district. The only reason it was lost in 2018 is because the Democrats got people to vote in record numbers, whereas Republicans only maintain your kind of your typical midterm results. And we lost by less than two points. But the last time a Democrat won the seat was 1971. So we, we have a great opportunity to take this seat back. And I think everything's trending in the right direction in the seventh district.
0: And so, for our listeners outside of Virginia, this district's in central Virginia, in the Culpeper area, uh, based and covers a pretty large part of the central part of the state. Correct?
2: That's correct. Yeah, all the way down, just north of Petersburg, uh, just uh, west of Richmond, and all the way up north into uh, Orange and uh, Culpeper counties. Right. So, uh,
0: true Virginia country uh, there. The um, describe a little bit about what sort of things in your well. Let's talk about you first. Let's just describe your background a little bit. So you. Uh, you grew up in Virginia, correct?
2: No, actually, Ooh. I was. So I was born and raised in uh, Northern California. That's
0: right, Northern California, right? Yeah, and what, your mom was involved I'm... in politics,
2: right? She was. My mom was a. Um, she was a, a nurse, but she was also the head of the local Republican Women. And I, whenever i get home from practice from high school, whether it was wrestling or, uh, you know baseball or whatever it was, she'd always look at me and she goes, why aren't you knocking doors? (laughs) She had me, she had me going out there. Well trained for
0: the job you got now.
2: Oh yeah. No, well, I'll tell you what, she's, I mean, just an incredible lady. She took us, me and my brother on missionary trips uh, all over the world. She, she had just a deep sense of patriotism, but also this real deep commitment that, you know, you have a personal responsibility to help your neighbor. It's not something you delegate out to the government and uh, she really taught us uh, an appreciation for what we have in this country on, on multiple levels.
0: Well, you showed that appreciation and that commitment because you enlisted in the Army, right? Joined the, is it the 89th Airborne you joined?
2: Uh, no, so oh, I, I sorry. 82nd Airborne 82nd, Division I'm sorry. First unit, yeah, right. and then uh, 25th Infantry over in Hawaii. And I got to my unit over in Hawaii and about three months later, 9-11, 9/11 occurred. Yeah. And so I volunteered for Army Special Forces, better known as Green Berets, and did a couple of tours over in Iraq uh, with that unit. And I, I loved being in Special Forces. It a great unit.
0: It, it's an amazing uh, a group. And that what our special operators go through, particularly in the post 9-11 era where deployments are multiple, and uh, it's an amazing group of people and their dedication is uh, beyond anything an any everyday American could even appreciate until you see what they do. How did the the war experiences sort of shape your your views? You know, coming into politics after you leave in two thousand nine, what 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 issues and what experiences there I think define what you know what political views you, you take today?
2: Sure. Well, I always tease that in in special forces you specialize in unconventional warfare and counterinsurgency, which really prepares you for domestic politics these days. <laughs> Good <laughs> but, point. You know, I think there was a there was a couple of things in the military service. Uh, one, I was always raised very patriotic, and and it really just solidified that when you're serving with people that are some of your best friends, and you're watching the the effort and the sacrifice and the danger that you're going through together. And you know, there's a there's a lot of philosophy on the left that says that when you join the military and when you're fighting, it's just for the man on your left and your right or the woman on your left and your right. No, it's both. It's for that and it's for love of country. There wasn't a single person I served with that didn't have a a deep abiding love for this country and what it represented. And so to experience that service in those sort of situations was very impactful on me. I I think the other thing, too, that really struck me was the idea of what, what it was that we were fighting for. And one of the things that was very, um, really kind of changed my my career path was when Barack Obama got elected in two thousand eight. I was on my second tour in Iraq, and he was the first president I can remember in my lifetime that really ran on this notion of wanting to fundamentally change the country. And it struck me as just terrifying that here we were overseas fighting for greater representative government, greater liberty. Uh, you know and at home we were losing the hearts and minds of our own people that were trying to adopt political philo- political philosophy really rooted in this idea of more government intervention into every aspect of our lives and right. so I, I really felt that it was necessary to engage you know in the battle of ideas back at home and so that's that's what put me on this path and I didn't think it would lead to elected office I, I got out there. I volunteered. I helped other candidates. I, I did a lot of you know, talking on how do we argue for the principles that we believe in and how do we argue for what America really stands for in an effective way, especially the younger generations. And through doing that, I got asked to run for the House of Delegates here in Virginia. And I've been serving there for the past five years. And then unfortunately, when this seat was lost in 2018, I got asked if I would consider running for Congress and take those arguments to the national level. And so that's what I'm doing.
0: That's amazing. Now, you moved to Virginia right after you finished your your service correct
2: i did i did yeah i'd always i first visited virginia when i was 13 i, I love american history and if you love american history there really is no better place yeah, to be than virginia it's ground zero. and oh gosh i, I fell in love with when i was 13 14 years old and and i remember when i was in the military i had a friend of mine stationed in virginia i drove up here to see him because i was down at fort bragg at north carolina at the time right? and i said I, I want i've always wanted to live in virginia since i first visited here I said, but I want, to, I want to get a little bit of property, a little bit of room, and and we drove out to Culpeper. I drove in for a day, and I said, yep, this is where I'll live, and seven years later, I, after two combat tours and, and moving here, we, we found a little place in Culpeper, and that's where we've been ever since.
0: That's fantastic. It's a beautiful community. For those who aren't familiar with Virginia, it is, it is God's country. It's one of the most beautiful areas, Madison, Culpeper, uh, Orange, that entire area there. So beautiful. The... Um, so uh, in your time in the House of Delegates, you've, you've developed a record. What are some of the things you're most proud of in your time as a state legislator that you bring now into this congressional race?
2: From, from a legislative standpoint, I, I've really focused on how do we empower individuals to have more control over their lives. And so, whether that's greater government transparency and people understanding how the government is spending or sometimes mismanaging their tax dollars, I've got legislation passed on that. When it comes to giving localities more control over things like career technical education and preventing Richmond from having this one-size-fits-all approach, uh, that's been very important. I mean, we've got some good legislation passed there as well. Property rights, uh, I, it it was amazing to me that state agencies could actually take your property without even giving you proper notification so you could defend yourself uh, in court. And so th- right. these are some of the things that I'm, I'm very proud of. And then I think the other thing that I, I've had an opportunity to do is, is really, again, fight for that conservative philosophy, because I really do think ultimately our philosophy is rooted in the idea of individual liberty, of private property rights, personal responsibility. The idea that the government's job is to protect your liberties so that you can live your life the way you want. You can pursue happiness in accordance with your definition of it, not a politician's definition of it. And being able to make that argument, uh, on the floor within the debate, uh, that typically goes on within our committees, within the floor debate, that's, that's been very important to me. Uh, because ultimately this, this is about expanding the American dream to as many people as possible. And I don't think you get there if you do what the Democrats are currently suggesting, which is rewriting and in many cases denigrating what the American experiment is all about in the first place.
0: It is remarkable, and in physics, they say, you know, uh, for everything, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And so if Barack Obama is the big government, one size fit all, your philosophy is sort of the opposite uh, reaction that grew out of that Obama era. As, you, as you've been going through your political career and now COVID happens, right, and we already have Obamacare, we have some of the big government experiments that are already on record, but when COVID comes along and you have these extraordinary government mandates, how has that played into your arguments and what sort of resonance does it have with everyday people in the district that you're trying to win?
2: Well, you know, it's it's interesting because I think you see a very clear contrast between the way a lot of Democrats want to address this situation and the way a lot of the Republicans do. And unfortunately, the press does the drumbeat. I mean, I think it is an absolute dereliction of duty on behalf of the press that Governor Cuomo is polling so high right now when he's arguably done one of the worst jobs across the country in managing this. And it just goes to show that this is what happens when you put politicians in charge of micromanaging things. Uh, When you allow the free market to operate, when you allow free people to engage in creativity and in innovation and adaptation to incredibly challenging circumstances, they do a much better job. And you you see that with things that I, I had multiple small businesses in my district calling us calling us up, begging us to please help them with the Small Business Administration. And we would do what we can there, but then we would point them in the direction of the 30-Day Fund, which was put up uh, by investor Pete Snyder. And it was because he, he recognized how difficult it was to be a small business owner. He had been there and he wanted to create something that would help these guys pay the rent and, and keep their doors open as we were going through this. And they would be waiting for weeks, months on the SBA and the 30-day fund, which was put up by the private sector, would have something to them within a week or two. And and you see the same thing with a lot of our manufacturers, everything from car manufacturers to distilleries, you know, transferring over to uh, hand sanitizer, car manufacturers transferring over to ventilators. Right. When when you allow people maximum ability. To be able to operate and adapt and use their creativity and voluntary cooperation, you're able to adjust these things much faster and much more effectively. I, I think it's very telling that one of the one of the few things that the governor in Virginia did that I actually agreed with was he started suspending all of these state regulations we had, which made it harder to get doctors and nurses and clinics into every part of the district. Now, this is something we've been fighting for long before there was ever a healthcare crisis, right? But I, I find it interesting that as soon as there is a healthcare crisis. The government is even at sometimes forced to admit that it's the one standing in the way of, of properly addressing it. And so I, I think that's the contrast that we're going to have to play. This is not a debate about one side wanting to help people and the other side not. This is really a debate about what is the best way to do it. And I don't think you're going to get a better result. I just saw an article today about a state that spent tens of millions of dollars on a hospital that saw 38 patients. Yeah, that was the in private our – we had that on Justin
0: News. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? it, uh, it uh, Illinois, I think it was. Yeah, crazy.
2: Yeah, so th- that's that's the contrast again. It's it's not about the Democrats. Oftentimes, try to make this a debate between, well, look, we're trying to help, and the, and the Republicans are just saying no. It's like, no, we we understand that there are multiple ways to help, but I, I'm I have far more faith in people working together in voluntary cooperation within the marketplace to come up with lasting, sustainable solutions that really address the problems within individual and diverse communities than I do some bureaucracy up in D.C. Doing whatever the biggest lobbyists tell them to do, and so that—that's the difference. It's
0: a—it's a, it's a re- remarkable thing. And President Trump has uh, created these public-private partnerships with COVID, particularly on the vaccines, but on many other things, of uh, ventilators, uh, even some of the Defense Production Act. Uh, actions are really partnerships as opposed to mandates that the government just bullied someone into doing. They're actual partnerships. Uh, is there a model going forward to get maybe the government bureaucrats out of more of these things and to get private sector and innovation more into the business of government than, uh, than we've had in the past? Did COVID open that door for us?
2: I, I think one of the greatest things that President Trump has achieved during his presidency was reducing all of the onerous and burdensome regulations that were standing in the way of, of businesses being able to adopt and expand and innovate. And I think if we can give President Trump a second term along with a Congress that will actually back him up, we can see a whole lot more of that. And, and that's what I'm excited about. It's, it's when you unleash the innovative and creative ability of the American people. That's where you actually see real success. It, it's not when you empower government bureaucracy because then everybody, whether it's individuals, whether it's businesses, are all sitting around afraid to, to hire people, afraid to right. expand, afraid to invest, because they don't know what the government's going to come up with next.
0: Yeah, they talk about that business uncertainty is the single greatest um, threat to uh, business innovation. And uh, that's a really great point. And the Trump record on this is is pretty extraordinary. There's a the deregulation and regulatory certainty has become so much more clear that uh, it, it seems to have been a big part of the economy. When you going specifically into your race now against Congresswoman uh, Spamberger, what is uh, what contrast have you been able to draw with her in her, her one term in, in Congress thus far?
2: Well, I think one of the major ones is that Congresswoman Spamberger ran on this idea that she was not a partisan. She was a reach across the aisle sort of person that she puts party above politics or excuse me, she puts some um, country above party in politics and her voting record just simply has not reflected that she's voted with Nancy Pelosi, I think over 90 percent of the time at this point when it comes to any of the substantive legislation that Democrats have tried to get through. She has always been right there voting along with them. I, I think there was some great opportunities that she could have shown some genuine confidence. And instead she she walked the party line the entire time. And you know, if, if she had campaigned, excuse me, if she had campaigned as someone that was a left-leaning Democrat that was gonna vote more in line with Nancy Pelosi and the squad than she was what she said when she was campaigning, that, that would have at least been intellectually honest. Uh, But it isn't. And I think a big problem of that is that if you look at the Overton window within the Democratic Party, it has shifted so far to the left that when a Democrat says they're a moderate now, well, gosh, that was a extreme left wing liberal five minutes ago. And that that's one of the biggest contrasts because that is not reflective of what the 7th District wants. And if she does get elected, she's going to continue to be a rubber stamp for what the most extreme elements of the Democratic Party wants. If Joe Biden gets elected president along with Kamala Harris, we're going to end up seeing a trillion-dollar tax increase. We're going to see more push on the Green New Deal. And she's already demonstrated to the people of the 7th District that ultimately she will go along with what her party says. And I, I think what we're looking for here is again expanding uh, the opportunities for the individual and for family is not um, more power to Washington D.C. And
0: uh, are you seeing those sort of messages resonate now? I mean, this is really this is an election where you're asking the district to come back to its natural home, right? Come back to Republicanism, conservatism. Do you, are you seeing people embrace that after watching uh, Congresswoman Spamberger's record for the last couple of years?
2: Uh, yes. One, one of the things that's interesting is for a freshman congresswoman, she has an amazing amount of name recognition within the district, but she's not polling very well. And the reason for that is because, again, people are wise to who she is and what she's actually done. So the, the typical campaign commercials, when she ran the first time on this pure potential and she didn't have a voting record that people could actually refer to, it was a lot easier to buy into the narrative that she was selling. Especially at a time where people were, you know, clamoring for for what they saw as unifying figures. Right. Well, I think right now with everything that's going on with COVID, with everything that's going on with our economy, with cities on fire right now, and, and let's be honest, the cities that are having the problems have been under almost unilateral democratic control for at least the last five decades. So we, we've gotten a picture of what happens when you have unilateral democratic control. And I think more and more you're seeing people that, regardless of what their problems are with, with, the various political parties, regardless of what their problems may be with different political figures. When they walk into that polling booth, what they're thinking to themselves is, can my business really sustain a trillion dollar tax increase? Can I really afford for my electric bill to double yet again if they pass the Green New Deal? Can I really afford for my kids not to be able to you know, get a good education? Can I really afford a, a society where when I pick the phone and I call the police, nobody shows up? And, Again, politics aside, I think people are going to look at that and say, I'm sorry, but the Democratic Party has become completely unreasonable on too many core fundamental issues.
0: Yeah, that, that is going to be the argument we're going to hear all fall along. What is the polling in the district? Do you have any numbers, uh, public or private, that just give us a sense of what the district looks like right now?
2: Uh, sure. The, the last polling that I think we've seen from the RNC shows that the district is overall trending at about R plus six right now, so which is, again, come great back news for us. But we have to, we have, one of the most important things we have to do is we have to keep our fundraising numbers up so that we can continue to compete in the battle of ideas. Right. And Abigail Spanberger has gotten a lot of money in. She, one of her ads talks about how she never takes corporate PAC money. Well, no, she takes money from Pelosi and Bloomberg and Tom Steyer and all these other groups right. that get, you know, millions in, in corporate PAC dollars and then they launder it through their organizations and give it to her. So it, it's about keeping parity. And so far, we've, we've done a good job. We've been very impressed with how engaged voters are right now and how they're, they're not falling for the same typical uh, political tricks that you see happening every election cycle.
0: Now, you, you have experience, obviously, in counterinsurgency because you, you work with the Green Berets in Iraq. When you look at some of the tactics that we've seen with Antifa and the, pro, uh, the rioters and protesters uh, around the country, people who really aren't interested in racial justice, which is the stated cause, but rather in ca- causing chaos, maybe bringing socialism to America, what tactics did you learn as a as a military man that can be useful in this environment where you see basically urban warfare? I think the attorney general used that term the other day, you know, in some of our cities, what can we do to put to rest some of this chaos, this violence, this attacks on law enforcement, which are clearly illegal? What do we need to do? You have a city in your backyard, right? I know it's not in your district, but Richmond's had some of these protests. What do you think we should do better to, um, to quell this violence and get America back to stability.
2: Well, you know, it's interesting. When you go through special forces training, one of the phases of training, you actually learn about uh, what it is like being a POW. You actually learn about things like communist and socialist propaganda and how it's utilized and how it attempts to manipulate things in order to achieve its political objectives. And so it, it's, again, both fascinating and terrifying to me to watch organizations like Antifa and other ones who, when when their leaders are being open and honest, they talk about the fact that they they come from a Marxist ideology. And that Marxist ideology is all rooted in the idea that, you know, you're not an individual. You're You're essentially irrevocably tied to a class, and that class is constantly at war with every other class. And so it is by its very nature an incredibly divisive political philosophy. And the only way that you beat uh, a bad idea like that is with a good idea. And I think more and more when you see so many of our students that have gone through an education system and a higher education system, with it, which has taught them a caricature of what free enterprise is about, taught them a caricature about what Western civilization is about, a, a lot of our argument is actually explaining to the people, sometimes for the first time, what it is we really believe and, and the beauty of a philosophy which is rooted in the power and the inherent worth of the individual. And when we talk about the individual, it's not because we don't care about the community. We just recognize that the building block of community, the building block of society is individual rights. And if you're not protecting those individual rights, then there's no way you're going to actually provide a a society of of security and prosperity for the community in general. And so it it has to start with individual liberty. And I think when you see what's going on within these cities right now, you know, it's amazing to me how they're, they're constantly accusing President Trump of, of being this tyrannical strongman, and it's ridiculous because the, the president, if he wanted to, could have used the executive power under the Insurrection Act and, and really come in hard in some of these cities, but he actually respects federalism. He actually respects constitutional limitations on his own power. And I think one of the things that we have to do really comes to that, once again, Getting our argument out there, not the caricature of argument, but our argument out there on how when you know, local governments have a role to play, state governments have a role to play, federal governments have a role to play, I think one of the most important things that we can do at the federal level right now is we need to provide for more educational opportunities and school choice. We don't need the federal government micromanaging local education. I think when it comes to the way that um, the police consolidation movement started within the 1960s and 70s, I think that was a real problem. We need more community-based policing. When you have a community-based police force, you typically get far better results, Right. uh, instead of this anti-law enforcement as an institution diatribe that we're seeing coming from the left. So I I think one of the most important things that the federal government Government can do is once again recognize that it doesn't have all the answers. Uh, One of the most important things that our, our governor should be doing in Virginia is when you do have a state of emergency like we saw in Richmond. I think it is very telling that when there was going to be a Second Amendment rally in Richmond. He called a state of emergency two days before it even happened, brought in police from all over the Commonwealth, bought in gates and fences to, to people off. Right. And there wasn't a single arrest of a, a pro-second amendment protester. They picked up their trash when they left. There was probably close to 30,000 people there for that, for that protest. And it was entirely peaceful. And yet when Richmond was on fire and Antifa was standing in the way of a fire truck that was trying to get to save a small boy in a burning building. He still didn't call for a state of emergency. Mm. He waited beyond that. And so really what this is about is people once again taking responsibility for their own communities and recognizing that the, you know, the, the Democrats' solution to every problem is give them more power. Well, they have controlled these cities for 50 plus years. And the schools are worse off. The healthcare isn't any better. The tax base through businesses is leaving because they don't feel like they can be protected. Or that their property rights will be protected. Right. And the Democrat solution is once again, put us in charge for another five decades and we'll fix it. Maybe it's time to try something else.
0: It's, uh, speaking of North, I mean, I remember a time when Republicans tried to court him. They thought he's a guy that could come over and sw- flop, the, flip the Senate, uh, a few years ago. But he has turned out to persist, particularly since the, the blackface, uh, uh, yearbook photo controversy. He has really drifted leftward. And I'm, I'm curious, is that going to have an impact? Obviously, taking action against, uh, guns. He's taken action on, on health care. He's taken action on taxes. What um, I just read the other day that they're going to impose a car tax or a tax on people who have electric cars and hybrid cars because they don't use the roads enough for gasoline. So we're going to tax them for that. Uh, Do you think his record plays into your efforts to recapture your district? Has he gone too beyond the, the red, purple natural tendencies of a Virginian?
2: No, absolutely. And, and again, Ralph Northam is actually a perfect demonstration of what we're talking about on the current status of the Democratic Party, because you're right. Five, 10 years ago, Ralph Northam was considered very much a middle of the road, moderate Democrat. And you look at him now and you would never make that assessment. Pretty much whatever the most extreme elements within the Democratic Party in Virginia have wanted, he has done it. He yeah. has doubled down on it. He vetoed a bill that would have had stiffer penalties for repeat domestic violence abusers. Mm. Because it had mandatory minimums in there. And he was adamant that they weren't going to do any more of that. And, and what's amazing is that bill was actually patroned um, <clears throat> by someone that, I, again, I typically wouldn't have expected. But he vetoed it because that's where the state of the Democratic Party is right now. Uh, they are so terrified of the far left wing of, of their base that they're one to go along with almost anything they do as long as it means that they can maintain power. And Abigail Spamberger has to take some ownership of that because she backed all of these Democrat candidates that ran for the House of Delegates. Right. She backed Ralph Northam. She's backing Joe Biden now. And so again, it goes to the idea that you know, She can call herself a moderate all day long, but her pot- party is not a moderate party. Her party is not a party that wants to sit down and solve problems. They are a party that gets their power from extending grievance, not from finding solutions. And she's a part of that, and she, she can't run away from it anymore.
0: In many ways, there's a, a lot of similarity Northam today to where Biden may be a few years from now. Uh, after a whole week of them trying to portray the San Francisco liberal Kamala Harris as moderate the, and the media buying into it, uh, Bernie Sanders walked on television yesterday, meet the press, and said, You know what? Joe Biden's going to be the most progressive uh, president since FDR, which kind of uh, gives you a sense of. A guy like Biden, who had a moderate record in the Senate before he joined the Obama administration as vice president. The the party is tugging all of its martyrs to the left in ways that wasn't imaginable in the fall election, uh, whether it's your district or President Trump nationally or the other 30 Trump districts that Republicans are trying to reclaim. What is the ultimate question that this election will turn on?
2: I think that's really hard to tell. I think there's a couple of things. People want – this is to some degree a a referendum on how governors are are handling the crisis with respect to the pandemic. Uh, The economy and jobs is always a a significant issue. Public safety – is going to be a significant one as well because if you're living in Henrico and Chesterfield counties, if you're living right next to Richmond and you're watching what's happening over there, nobody wants riots coming to a community near you. Right. I think most what most people want out of life is, is fairly similar despite all the deep political divides. People want to be happy, healthy, prosperous, and free. They want to be able to know that when their kids get on the bus, they're going to be able to go to school, get a good education, and come home safe. They want to be able to know that if they go to their, their business, that they're going to be able to open the doors and pay their employees employees. And again, I think as those same people are looking at what Joe Biden and Abigail Spamberger and Kamala Harris and Nancy Pelosi are, are looking for, um, they're going to increase your taxes. They're going to increase regulations. They're going to take away educational opportunities unless they're government-controlled ones. They're not going to keep your cities safe. And in fact, they're doing everything they possibly can to ensure that they won't be safer by demonizing every single law enforcement officer because of the acts of a few. And I, I don't think I don't think that's not what they bargained for. I, I don't think that's even what most Democrats have bargained for. And nobody's buying it anymore. And so I, I think that's going to be the, the question that things h- really hinge on is with everything that's going on right now from from the healthcare crisis to education to their business or being able to pay their bills. Do you really believe that Joe Biden is going to be better for the country with a trillion dollar tax increase, the Green New Deal, and more and more regulations and restrictions, and completely failing to do the one thing that we all believe government should do, which is keep our communities safe.
0: Uh, last question because I know you got to get back to the campaign trail, but uh, mail in voting, how uh, how concerned are you about the potential for fraud? And then also how more how much more important does it make your get out the vote efforts? If you got that plus six in the district now and the poll trend lines, how important is get out the vote to counter the mail mail-in balloting democratic effort uh, going to be in the fall?
2: Well, so I think that one of the things the Democrats have done, which is a a complete misrepresentation, is they've tried to make mail-in voting as if it's the same thing as absentee voting. And they're very, very different for some key fundamental reasons. Absentee voting, you have to request the ballot, which means that you've made a positive request to your local registrar. They can be assured that the person requesting the ballot, that they're sending it to the right address, and that it is someone that is actually legally uh, permitted to vote. Mail-in voting is this total crapshoot Where there's there's mailing out ballots to everywhere where they think you live in the hopes that they're mailing the right ballot to the right person. And the potential for voter fraud with an all mail in system is just through the roof. And I so I think that's that's a real threat. In Virginia, we still have our absentee voting. We've we've worked very hard to make access to the to the uh, ballot box very easy. By the same token, we've tried to actually protect the integrity of our elections. Unfortunately, the Democrats ripped away a lot of the most common sense measures like having a photo ID. Uh, so we'll, we'll see what happens. But our, obviously, our get out the vote effort is incredibly critical. We're going to be pushing very hard on the absentee voting. And we're certainly going to fight against any sort of all mail in voting system scheme uh, that could potentially come in within the General Assembly.
0: It's going to be an amazing uh, fall. There's no doubt about it. We've been lucky to have some of the most important contenders in these house races on the show. And, and Nick, we're thankful that you joined us today to share what you're doing. And we'll be watching this district, maybe have you back on the day after election if you've got a victory in your hand. So that might be uh, fun. Would would,
2: lo- would love to be. And if I could real quick, if, if anybody does want to learn more about our campaign, they yep. can always go to nick4va.com. And then we've also done something, I think, somewhat unique among candidates. And we realized that with COVID, we weren't going to be able to do as many events. So we set up a podcast called Making the Argument with Nick Freitas. And we specifically go into all these different policy solutions and and policy positions. And we explain what is our approach to solving problems, because the Republican approach is not just saying no to what the Democrats want to do. It it really is expanding opportunity. And we go into very, very specific detail on the policies we support and why we think it'll be beneficial to all Americans.
0: So the Reagan fire side chats brought to the uh, iTunes world, huh? Yes, sir. <laughs> How about that? That's great. Well, wow, what an idea to have substance in an era of political uh, silliness. That's really great, Nick. I appreciate you mentioning that. All right. Well, we're going to let you get back to the trail and folks, we'll be back right after this commercial break to wrap things up for the day. Folks, if you owe back taxes, fair warning, you're not going to like this. The IRS is mailing millions of IRS penalty canceling offer. To do so, call 1-800-245-6000. That's 1-800-245-6000. Or visit tnusa.com slash news. That's tnusa.com slash news. All right, folks, that wraps up the special Monday edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Just the News. I hope you enjoyed listening to Nick Friedis. He's a Republican congressional candidate that a lot of both parties, a lot in both parties, the Democrats and Republicans are both watching the the race against Alison Spanberger is a very closely watched race. She's one of those Democrats that captured a Trump leading district in 2018 during the midterm blue wave. And the question is, can Republicans recapture that district as they did recently in uh, Orange County, California, with a, a Republican winning a special election out there? More to come, but you should keep an eye on that going forward. It's uh, one of the most important watched races of the year, and um, we'll keep you abreast on that right now. We heard Nick say it's leaning Republican. We'll see if that holds. It's all going to come down to get out the vote. Can Republicans muster enough votes at the ballot box to match the mail-in ballot efforts that the Virginia government and uh, the Democrats nationwide are mustering? Uh, We'll find out uh, on election day or shortly thereafter, but you get to hear from one of the frontline contenders, Nick Friedis, Green Beret, trying to capture a district that Donald Trump won in Virginia back in 2016. All right, we'll be back tomorrow, Tuesday, with our normally scheduled podcast. Until then, be safe, be healthy, enjoy your family, and uh, tune in tomorrow for a new edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from just the news. Statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease, and it's not a substitute or alternative for care from a healthcare provider. Folks, everyone knows the next medical crisis is just around the corner, whether it comes in the form of a pandemic or something much more mundane like a tick bite.